You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 7 through 13 today. And as you're turning, let's say it together. We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus greater. I mentioned last week that chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, are really going to be sort of uh, some pivotal chapters. They're a pivotal point in this letter uh, of the Hebrews. And most of that revolves around in these three chapters that the author has, he has confidently and he has clearly established Jesus as our great high priest and the work that Jesus has done as our great high priest. And so he now turns to what that work is, where it was birthed out of, what the purpose of it is. Uh, Last week we read in chapter 8, verse 3, he said this, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What is it that Jesus offers? Well, he offers us salvation. He offers us new life. He offers us uh, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He offers us forgiveness. But all of that is encompassed in that he offers us the fulfillment of what Jeremiah 31 tells us is the new covenant made by God. So let's read Hebrews 8, beginning verse 7, go through verse 13 today. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, out of their, uh, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We say new covenant. The question, of course, then becomes, well, what is this new covenant replacing? There's multiple covenants woven throughout the Old Testament. There are multiple little covenants, side covenants, speeches, and and conversations about covenant. But there are some primary covenants that we see in the Old Testament that I want to just walk you through very quickly. Genesis 2 really is the first covenant where God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. Though the word covenant is not expressly used there, The language, the idea, the interaction between God and his new creation is of a covenant nature. In Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, God establishes a covenant with Noah initially to save him, to save his family, to save those who would be on the ark. And then towards the end of those three chapters, he makes a new covenant to never again flood the earth. 
In Genesis 15 through 17, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. And Isaac becomes the son of the promise of that covenant. The entire book of Exodus tells us the story not only of Israel's freedom and Israel's leaving Egypt in bondage, but more importantly, it tells us of God remembering his covenant promises and acting on them with Israel. That is often called the Mosaic Covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God establishes a covenant with David, setting him up as king of Israel forever meaning that he guaranteed a future faithful king would come from the line of David who would fulfill all of God's promises. And then the last big covenant is that covenant out of Jeremiah 31. We typically call the new covenant. Why why is this important of understanding covenant? It's important because covenant making is the backbone or the foundation of God working with his people. All the way throughout the Old Testament, that is the way he worked. Some of those were very conditional in nature. I want to read to you as an example from Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 16. If you do not listen to me and you do not do all these commandments, if you uh, spurn my statutes and your soul abhors my rules, that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with disease, and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. It was a conditional covenant. If you don't do this, God's promises were conditional. Some were unconditional. The covenant uh, with Noah and all future generations to never again flood the earth, never to destroy the earth in that manner, and to set the rainbow in the sky as a promise of that covenant was unconditional. Nothing we can do can ever change that promise from God. Covenants are the way that God ultimately developed his redemptive plan and showed it and spelled it and displayed it through the Old Testament leading up to the time of Jesus. So what does this new covenant in Jeremiah 31 replace? It replaces that Mosaic covenant with all its law-keeping and the sacrificial system and all the external holiness it is a new covenant that replaces that and so we want to look at that today out of this passage in hebrews so the first point for us today is this the old covenant's weakness was mankind the old covenant's weakness was mankind repeatedly the authors of the new testament remind us the failure of the old covenant was with man not with the covenant Romans 8.3, Paul wrote it this way, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's not that the law was not powerful enough to change, but the law being weakened by our sinful nature, by our sinful flesh, could not accomplish what it wanted to. James, in his letter in the New Testament, to those who think that they're somehow good enough because they keep most of the covenant, most of the old ways, He writes in James 2, verse 10, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's a sobering thought, huh? That to fail in one point of all the Old Testament law, you are accountable for all of it? And so the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was found to be with fault, but it was with them. It was with mankind. Look again at what he says there in verses 7 and 8. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them. 
when he says. Look, look in verse 9. The second part of that reveals that for us as well. It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So the old covenant had a fault. It was not faultless, but the fault ultimately had to do with those who God had made that covenant with. So what was the purpose of it? Well, number one, it was to reveal God's holy standard. For his people. It was to reveal, to reveal his righteous standard, his expectation of holiness for those who would say that he is our God. We should not think that the new covenant lets us off in terms of our behavior. Listen to the words of Jesus from John chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. By this my Father is glorified that you would bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way in his commentary. He says, even though the new covenant of grace brings with it freedom from the law of Moses, it does not bring freedom to disobey God and go ahead and sin. One man has suggested that through the four Gospels, there are as many as 84 commandments from Jesus. A commandment being something that Jesus teaches, something that he says that is the way we are to look, we who are his disciples, we who are his followers, the things that we are to do. And he rightly says, you can sum those things up as Jesus does with these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If we, could, if we could just think about every action in this world. If it could be filtered through those two things. How different would this world look? So the old, co the old covenant does not allow for us to. As it's replaced by the new covenant. To simply go into sin. The fault's still with us. Secondly the old covenant was a guardian until Jesus came. Reading from Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 23. Before faith came, Paul writes, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And verse 29, we'll be referring back to this in just a moment. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The old covenant served as a guardian to it to us. What, what does the guardianship mean? A guardian is just a word that um, describes a person, a, a more mature person, an adult person, if you will, who was in charge of or appointed over a young child to train them, to teach them, to provide safety for them. And so when we look back at the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and all the, all the explosion of those commandments and how they played out in civil and ceremonial and dietary laws and holy, holiness and, and all the different regulations, it was designed to train, to teach, and provide safety. 
It was our guardian until Christ would come and usher in this new covenant, as we'll see in a moment, that moves all of that from being external to internal. So how, how, did, how did it as a guardian provide safety, for example? This will be a silly example, but it's an example nonetheless. Some of you know this, not all of you, but um, in June, my household went vegetarian for a month. Now, we started vegetarian, and then we decided we needed to go pescatarian, which means you can eat a little fish and eat a little shrimp every now and then. And when I say my household, really I mean me, because everybody else bailed at some point during the month. <laughs> but it was just an exercise we wanted to do. There were a lot of different reasons for it, a lot of different uh, external influences that had us make that decision. But at the end of June, I told Alyssa, I felt better than I had felt in decades. I felt better than I had felt even when I was in my mid-20s and I was working out all the time and playing six different sports a week and, and ripping and running. And I, I felt my body just had energy. It had a newness. I slept better. Partly because when you're eating vegetarian or pescatarian, we haven't converted to Presbyterianism, it's pescatarian, you cut out everything that's really not good for you. And so when we look at some of the dietary laws, for example, under the Old Covenant, we might look at those things and think, oh, that's silly, oh, that's weird, oh, why would God say that? But in all of that, that was designed for safety. He knew that our bodies weren't meant for all of this junk. And I'm not saying you need to be a vegetarian today, but I am telling you, I felt better than I'd felt in years. The old covenant was a guardian to protect us, to teach us, to train us until Jesus. And ultimately, that was the purpose of the old covenant, to display our need for Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is better to be understood as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus who was spoken of by prophet and word of God long ago, who would be the one who would come to bring redemption. So the old covenant's weakness was mankind. Secondly, the new covenant is both now and future in its fulfillment. I'll say it again. The new covenant is both now and future in its fulfillment. Pick up in 8b again, if you will. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is now... In that Jesus has inaugurated it. 
He has begun the process. We often talk about Jesus inaugurating the kingdom, bringing the kingdom to us and and beginning the the domino effect, if you will, that will result one day in his return and his setting up the kingdom for all time. But he has inaugurated the new covenant as he's inaugurated it in the kingdom. And so the promises of the new covenant that are active now are, number one, an internal power over sin instead of an external influence. I'll say it for you again. An internal power over sin instead of an external influence. Look at how God words it here out of Jeremiah 31 being quoted here in Hebrews 8. I will put my laws into their minds, verse 10, and write them on their hearts. An internal change. An internal power. No longer a life that is governed by do's and don'ts, but a life that is now governed by those who are truly in Christ, by the presence of the indwelling Christ in their life, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to this in this fashion in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3, as he's commending the church at Corinth. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show... You display that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The new covenant is this internal change. It's this internal power. It is this, when I say yes to Jesus and I accept my Lord and Savior, and he begins to do that work in me. Now my, my movement is less towards do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, and it is more to what is the Spirit of God leading me to be? Who is he leading me to become? And, and I'm going to say something that probably will be controversial today and might even hurt some of us. And now you notice I say us because I always include myself in this. It is an error for a son or daughter of God a brother and sister in Christ, one who has placed their faith and trust in Christ and accepted his salvation and accepted his process of sanctification of being made like him, it is an error for us to say in whatever aspect in our lives, that's just who I am. I just can't help but gossip. I just can't help but want to steal a little bit here and there, thieve a little bit. I just can't help but slander. I just can't help but be sexually immoral. I just can't help from tipping the bottle a little too much. It's a lie. It is a lie from, as my father-in-law likes to say, the pit of hell. He says it much more southern than I say it. But it's a lie. Because the new covenant, the promise of of being unified with Christ is that we now have this internal power. I'm not suggesting that we don't have those desires, but we now have an internal power not to act on the desires if we are faithfully following him. It's what I like to call in our culture of Christianity sometimes saved without sanctification. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to hell. I can just go on and live like I want to. And that is, that is completely contrary to the message of Christ and the message of the new covenant. 
In December 1967, Dr. Christian Bernard performed the world's first heart transplant in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he asked one of his early patients, a Dr. Philip Blayberg, if he wanted to see his old heart. And he handed the glass container containing this man's old heart, and it said that Blayberg looked at it and studied it for a moment and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he placed it back up on the shelf, and he walked away with a new life and as a new man with a new heart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's time we put the old heart on the shelf and walk away. It's time we move away from that which plagues us, that which interferes with our life with God, that which interferes with our display of His glory, that which interferes with our witness to His greatness, and move away from it and say, that's not who I am. That may be who I was, but that is not who I am. Internal power instead of external influence. Secondly, he says we have an intimate relationship and infinite forgiveness. An intimate relationship and infinite forgiveness. Look, look there again in verse 10. He says, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And jump down to verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He goes on to say, from the least of them to the greatest. Intimate relationship. It, it, it is not lost on me that as God pens these words through the prophet Jeremiah in its original context, that he's writing about a people who have continually been unfaithful to him. That he's writing about a people who have continually turned their back on him, who have continually made covenants with other countries and other kings and other gods and worshipped false gods. And that God does not stand in Jeremiah 31 and say, tell them I'm done. Tell them it's over. He stands through the prophet Jeremiah and says, I'm devising a plan not to write you off. I'm devising a plan that has existed since the beginning of time and even before the beginning of time to draw you closer. I will be their God they will be my people. I told you to, to pay attention to and to remember that verse from Galatians 3, 29 again. I want to say it again. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Because this new covenant promise of I will be their God and they will be my people is for all people. It points all the way back to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. That to a man who could not have any earthly children at that point, God said to that man, I will make from your life nations. Nations. And those nations eventually include us. He provides an intimate relationship, one that Jesus describes in John 15 as saying, abide in me. And he not only describes and gives us that intimate relationship, he gives us that infinite forgiveness. Look there again at verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
This is not a new concept with God. Sometimes we look at the new covenant and we look at Jesus and how he fulfills it and this forgiveness of sin and we think, oh, well, God finally decided to forgive us of our sin in that fashion. Almost 400 years earlier than Jeremiah and his writings, in Psalm 103, it says this, beginning verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This was not a new thing that God decided to do through the new covenant in Jesus. God's always been in the business of forgiving. He's always been in the, in the business of removing and forgiving. That beautiful phrase there in that psalm, as far as the east is from the west, if we were to have a, a globe sitting in front of us and we were to start talking about going north to south and north to south, eventually as you're heading south, you start to become north, right? But if you're going east to west... You're only ever going one direction, either east or west. It's a phrase that God uses in that psalm to say it's as if it's gone, expunged, pushed away forever. That was always God's heart, and the fulfillment of God's heart and the fulfillment of his forgiveness for us lies in the new covenant that is then fulfilled in Christ Jesus. You say, well, wasn't he forgiving sins through the old covenant? No, they were being covered The word for atonement in the Old Testament is a word that simply means to cover. It doesn't mean to remove. It doesn't mean to fix. It doesn't mean to make new. It just means that for a year, your sins were covered by the animal sacrifice. Um, The door frames inside of a house have just enough edge to them that if you've ever played with a Nerf hoop, you can slide the back of that Nerf hoop down the door frame a little bit, and then you can shoot. We one year decided in high school to have a dunk contest on the door frame. It's a bad idea. <laughs> and I won't say who did it, <clears throat> but somebody performed a dunk, and as they kind of hit and grabbed onto the rim a little bit, a big piece of the door facing came off. And concerned about what might happen if said person got found out, (laughs) we took it, we glued it, got it nailed back in, but you know how wood breaks, right? And there's all these little chips. And so we searched the house for a brown marker that would match that stain color. (laughs) And we found it. And we fixed it. No, we covered it. All the imperfections, all the damage, all that was still there. We just covered it with a marker. God's forgiveness told through the new covenant, fulfilled in Christ, doesn't cover. It fixes it. It removes it. His, his way of saying it in this new covenant, I will remember their sins no more. We, we shouldn't look at that and think that God forgets them. It's more understood that what he's saying is he never will hold any of those things against us ever, past, present, or future because of Jesus. 
And that's why I say to you again, I plead with you again for another fact today, brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the enemy's best tactics is to bring up your sin and my sin. You want to know how many times in 22 years I've heard, you're not worthy to preach. I don't know how you've heard it or what situation you've heard it in, but I know you've heard it because I know our enemy has very limited tactics and he uses it on all of us. And every time I hear that, I think new covenant. Every time I hear that, I think Jesus, that he has forgiven me those sins. The sin, the new covenant is now and it is future. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but look all the way back up at the end of verse 8 for just a second. It's future in this manner. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Through Jesus, we who have been made heirs according to the promise, through Abraham, through our faith, he's already reunified us. But in a very real sense, Israel one day will be unified again as a nation, as a people. This is the way Paul writes it in Romans chapter 11, he, as he so expertly in Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about the situation of Israel. And listen to what he says in chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you should be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Some people put it this way, that we're in an age of grace that extends to those who are not Jewish by bloodline by heritage God has extended that and who knows how much longer he will extend it but he's extended it until he has decided that it is time to make Israel and Judah once again third and final point today the old covenant was outdated look at verse 13 in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Obsolete simply just means outdated. Kenzie asked me a few weeks ago, I had to go to Shelbyville to take Gabriel to therapy, and I always have a couple of hours to kill there, and sometimes I go and work and at a coffee shop, but she wanted to go with me that day and go look through antique stores, which if you know much about downtown Shelbyville, there's tons of them there. And so we're walking through, and oh, what's that? And oh, what's that? And we came upon a rotary phone. She said, how did that work? <laughs> I was like, well, when I was a kid, you could just dial the last three numbers, and then you had to dial the last four, and then you had to dial the last number of the prefix, and then you had to dial all eight or all seven numbers, and blew her mind. Blew her mind. I didn't even bring up party lines. <laughs> that would have just confused her even more. For those of you that are confused right now, a party line was when you picked up your phone at home and you didn't have enough money to pay for a private line so you could hear all the neighbors' conversations and they could hear yours. She was just floored by that technology, but that technology became obsolete. The rotary phone gave way to the push-button phone that gave way to the cordless phone that gave way to the nobody-has-a-phone-in-their-home-anymore phone because we carry it with us everywhere we go. The old covenant was obsolete, it was outdated, and he says it was ready to vanish away. I said the very first week that most people believe this letter was probably written anywhere from 50 to 95 A.D., 
I think this verse tells us that it was probably written more in that scheme of 50 to 70 A.D. Because I believe the Holy Spirit was leading the author of Hebrews to understand that in 70 A.D. the temple would be destroyed. And all of the temple sacrifices that had continued to go on after Jesus' death would be no more. Would be outdated. Would be obsolete. I believe through the Holy Spirit, this is his plea to these Jewish Christians to understand, don't throw your faith away for something that is getting ready to be obsolete. For the sacrifices of the priests could never take away sins. The law could only point out our weak, sinful nature. It couldn't change it. Only Jesus could accomplish both. Only Jesus could change your nature. Only Jesus can remove your sins and the penalty of your sins. Only Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. And in Mark chapter 14 and in Matthew 26, in both of those gospels, as Jesus led the disciples through the last Lord's Supper that he would have with them, the last Passover meal, he said to them, this is my blood for the new covenant. The new covenant. No longer rules and regulations, no longer animal sacrifices, no longer external forces trying to make us good. Now in Christ, intimacy with God, internal change, infinite forgiveness. Oh, how he's worthy of our praise. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.